I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Hello and welcome to the Fried Egg Podcast. My name is Garrett Morrison, and today we're talking about takeaways from the 2022 Masters Tournament. So I have to be honest, from a competitive perspective, this wasn't the most compelling Masters in recent memory. Scotty Scheffler dominated the event from Friday through Sunday. Yes, Cameron Smith challenged him at various points, and Roy McIlroy made a great run on Sunday. But Scheffler played so brilliantly that for most of the final round, the outcome really wasn't in doubt. And yet, what this Masters may have lacked in competitive tension, I think it made up for in rich, interesting storylines. First, there's Scotty Scheffler, who has won four of his past six tournaments and this weekend fully confirmed his status as the number one golfer in the world. Now we can legitimately ask the question, is Scheffler golf's next superstar? Or is this just an incredible hot streak? Then there's Rory McIlroy, who did seem to exercise some of his master's demons on Sunday as he shot 64 and finished solo second. It was really thrilling to see him hole out from the bunker right of the 18th green and not quite know what to do with his body because he was so excited. But from another point of view, you could see Rory's performance yesterday as yet another example of him finding his game at Augusta National exactly when he knows he doesn't have a chance to win. And of course, we can't not talk about Tiger Woods. 14 months ago, he drove his car at a dangerous rate of speed into a ravine in Palos Verdes, California. His lower extremities were mangled, and he was confined to a bed for months. This past weekend, he made the cut at the Masters and walked 72 holes at Augusta National, which, in case you haven't heard, is hillier than it looks on TV. It was obvious that Tiger was in pain, but equally obvious that he was determined to prove that he could do it. Finally, there was a lot of discussion of the course itself. Augusta National made substantial renovations to its 11th and 15th holes and smaller tweaks to a few others. The quality of these changes and the effect they had on competition was a topic of discussion all week, and we'll wrap it up as best we can in this podcast. As we'll typically do for major championship recaps this year, we talked to three different guests for this episode, all with unique perspectives on the game. First, we have Jaime Diaz, who talked to me from his hotel room after finishing up his work for Golf Channel's terrific show, Live from the Masters. Jaime has written for the New York Times and Sports Illustrated, and he is one of my favorite golf writers of all time. In addition, we've got two voices that you'll recognize if you have listened to the Fried Egg Podcast for a while, Bob Crosby, a golf historian, and Joseph LaMagna, an analytics expert. All right, let's get to it. Here are some takeaways from the 2022 Masters. All right, so I have Jaime Diaz on the phone. Jaime has been out at Augusta National covering the tournament for Golf Channel. How are you doing, Jaime? You've had a long day. Doing great, Garrett. Yeah, it's a long day, but it's an exhilarating day and. uh it's kind of nice to just, I'm um, here in a Augusta hotel room right now. Uh, very uh, sort of sated <laughs> by the whole day, by the whole week. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with me uh, uh, after your long day and, uh, and making this part of your wind down. But I was just wondering, you know, if you could have one general takeaway from this tournament, what would that be? Well, I think the brilliance of Scotty Scheffler, uh, yes, he's sort of new on the scene in terms of being a force in the game, but you are seeing a very fast evolution of a player who's, I think, recognized that, you know, maybe he's a little better than he, than he even knew him, himself to be, even though he's always been on a, a gradual up, up, upward track, going way back to when he won the U.S. Junior Amateur. Uh, but he has the properties and the qualities of, um, I think the best uh, tools for the modern game. He, he hits the ball very high. He hits the ball quite long. He's not the most accurate, but he's not 
he's not a wild driver by any means. He, uh, he, he hits very, uh, authoritative, you know, high irons that can, that can stop on major championship, uh, quality firmness. And he's shown that already. And, uh, I think the six previous majors, he finished top 20 for, which for a young guy is impressive. Uh, and of course we see the, not just the creativity, but the, uh, you know, the, the real quality strike of his short game and how he, uh, how he can really recover uh, again on really fast firm greens because he, he does strike it so, so purely with a lot of spin and uh, he's really good at those shots with 60 degree wedges that, you know, Phil Mickelson, for example, I think that was his great advantage. Not that uh, Scotty hits a lot of flop shots, but just has the, uh, the, the craftiness and the, the hand eye and the, awareness of the of the club head to to really fashion shots and and recover when he does make a mistake which i think for a power hitter that's so important if you're going to be winning tournaments uh because power hitters just they have less margin for error and they're going to make mistakes uh and they're not you know going to be although scotty is a good iron player it's just he's not you know this kind of point to point guy like colin morikawa or someone and so you got to have the short game i mean that's what sevy did that's what uh greg norman did that's what Tiger did to a large extent. You know, it's a way of being, I think, traditionally a, a dominant type player. Phil, you know, Ernie to some extent, uh, they, they had both the power and the hand. But I, I think Scotty is showing real promise to be a guy with a, a very strong foundation who will last a long time. And this really wasn't a fluke. It, it seems like his game will age well. But at the same time, the the reception of Scotty Scheffler has been interesting to me because I think people don't quite know what to make of him yet. I mean, he is a new name to a lot of people, to casual fans, to people who follow golf only occasionally. They, they sort of come back from the break from the last major and all of a sudden this new guy is supposedly the best player in the world and people are trying to process that. But also, you know, unlike Rory unlike even Colin Morikawa, Scotty doesn't necessarily have one big skill that really stands out. You know, with Rory, it's the driving of the golf ball. You know, that that is so obvious that he's great at that. And then with Colin Morikawa, it's the iron play. With Scheffler, it's, it's a little hard to tell what that standout skill is. And maybe it is just, as you're saying, the combination of a few different things, the ability to hit the ball high and the wonderful hands around the green. Would you kind of say that that's where his, where his, you know, outstanding excellence comes from? Yeah. I think it's just the accumulation, you know, the well-roundedness, you know, sort of the composite of it all right. uh, is, and sort of lacks a, a weakness or at least a, a really overt weakness, which I think Rory kind of still has. He, you know, when we talk about Rory, I, I think that was one of the big, real positives of what he, what he did this week was where he was putting his focus on, you know, kind of to plug up the holes in his game that he, I think he's ignored for a while because I think he was under the impression that if I just drive it great, I'll, you know, I have such an advantage, I'll beat people, uh, which is not necessarily true. Uh, so, you know, I think Scheffler has got a, a player's mentality as opposed to a ball striker's mentality or, a, you know, a great swinger's mentality. He's, he's about playing golf and uh, he's won in many different ways already. And, and it's, it's just because he, he, he can access different tools at different times. If he's not on with something else, the short game's there to clean up a lot. And I don't know how, how long that lasts. I mean, I think Tom Watson played like that a lot. I remember, you know, he was a dominant player who was not the most stylish ball striker. Uh, I mean, beautiful, great athlete and, and a lot of rhythm and power, but he did hit it a, a lot of different places. And, and he would recover. Um, I meant, I didn't mention him before, but I, I and Sevy, of course, you know, uh, was just a, a cleanup magician. Uh, and then when he was on, he did make a lot of birdies, but when he wasn't, he kept his bird, he kept his birdies because he, he saved par so well. Uh, I think that's where Shep, I think that's where Scotty, that's his, he's part of that continuum. Tom Watson is a really interesting comparison. I, I hadn't thought of that one. And I was trying to come up with what a good historical comparison for Scotty Scheffler would be. You mentioned Seve and, and Tom Watson. Are, are there any other players that you can think of, you know, going back through the years that uh, resemble Scotty Scheffler to you? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I, I kind of went through my little list because I was thinking of number ones. 
uh, and uh, you know, Sandy Lyle was a little like that. Interesting. Uh, yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't that unusual. You know, against power and touch, that that was the thing that uh, used to be considered rare. You know, that if you had one, you probably didn't have the other. And those rare players that had the combination, uh, because Jack didn't really classically have a great short game. He was, you know, he was a great manager. And so he, he usually, you know, would and hit, a, and hit a ton of greens, of course. But he, he was not a real stylish scrambler. Right. And, uh, you know, he'd beat people with proficiency and, and power. And, and, and great putting, right? He was, he was a putting, power yeah. player and, yeah. and he could putt well. That was his, that was his magic. Right. Yeah, so he didn't have the, the the wedge, but he didn't need it that often. He uh, just as an aside, I, you know, I asked him that once, and I, I said, "Geez, Jack, why weren't you a better wedge player?" You know, and he goes, "Oh, I should have gone to see, you know, uh, Paul Runyon. Jack Route never taught short game, and I just kind of told myself I didn't need it. I could slop it up there and make the eight footer for par." But, but I said, "Hey, you didn't win every tournament." He goes, "You're right. You know, I probably got about. I should have done it." And I just wasn't dedicated enough to do it. Interesting. Uh, and, 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 and I maybe, you know, was, I was trying to save my energy because I knew if I obsessed about every shot and every, every area of my game, I might go a little crazy. So it was just this kind of uh, field thing that he, he chose to sacrifice. But to say, I think Tiger is the best example of having close to everything. But, you know, Tiger was not the straightest driver. And so he had to recover a lot. And I think he was, and, and it goes back to his junior days when he had to be a good little wedge player to stay up with all the longer kids that he was playing with who were older than him. And, and he developed a wedge early and liked it, liked the, the creativity of it and the variety of it and what he could do, make the ball do and dance and all those things. And it's, you watch him in those warmups, you know, if you watch uh, on golf channel when they show every shot that he hits in practice, uh, warming up, he loves hooking those little chips and hitting, you know, all these little sort of almost like it's a playing table tennis or something. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that fascination makes him special along with all his other attributes. I think when he was off, he could always make a score. And I get that sense from Scotty. He can, he can always make a score. Now, speaking of the ability to make a score when you're not on, that seems to be an issue with Rory McIlroy or has been for, the past few years and, and maybe even before that, maybe he was just so brilliant in other aspects of the game that he was able to make up for his, you know, seeming lack of ability to kind of put things together when he's off. But today, Jaime, I think you noticed a few things that he was doing that were a little bit tighter around the greens, I guess, and where he was able to preserve scores in ways that maybe we haven't seen him do recently. Yeah, I think it's more of a frame of mind and a focus, a new focus, and a final acknowledgement, you know, that I I am just letting too many shots leak away. And I don't know matter how well I hit it, especially off the tee, it's it's not gonna make up for those for those lost, you know, sort of soft bogeys that seem to undermine him. And I think they're discouraging too. I think they do something to his momentum and his state of mind. I think, you know, Rory in some ways, maybe the worst thing that ever happened to him was winning two majors by eight shots, because I think it created the illusion that I can just overwhelm golf courses and overwhelm my opponents with my great advantages, which are great advantages. But two things happen. Number one, people see that marker out there that this is what this guy's doing and they catch up, you know, and just like in every other sport, you know, the other players adapt and get better. And I don't necessarily think Rory's the best driver of the ball anymore. Not that he's not great at it, but there's a bunch of them. You know, I think DJ kind of took that mantle for a while and, and maybe maybe John Rahm has it now. But so Rory doesn't have this five car length uh, advantage over the field with the driver. And he's been exposed, in my opinion, uh, for not having the other part of the game that we just talked about with Scotty Scheffler. But what I noticed recently is he's been talking about it. Uh, he never used to talk about it very much. He'd just say, you know, I just got to, you know, get a nice groove and and think about uh you know, getting my golf swing and nice. He, he didn't talk about short game very much. Uh, and now he is, he's uh, at Texas. He did miss the cut there, but he said, I've, I've got to get more consistent, getting the ball up and down. I've got to be better from eight feet and in. Hmm. And I think that basically summarizes where he has, in my opinion, anyway, just watching and without quantifying it necessarily with stats, it, it just seems that's where he, he would undermine himself, especially in majors. Uh, and so that's where, 
today was when he was asked what pleased him the most about his round. And it was such a beautiful round. And it was so explosive. And he holed out, what, four times from off the green? I mean, it was incredible. So that's kind of fluky. And you don't, you don't expect that. But he said it was saving, uh, par saving putts and getting up and down on, he specifically said, uh, the 11th hole, the 12th hole, and the 14th hole. And they were all examples of where he had to make like a tough six-footer for par, or he had to get it up and down from a fairly tight lie, and he did it. And it, it kept it going. It, it, you know, that was a bogeyless 64. Now, you know, I could have seen it easily be a 69 or a 68 if Rory had not had gotten into one of those bogey trains where he wasn't, when he wasn't hitting it good, making bogey. Because uh, a couple of those birdies were places where he might have made bogey. He chipped in a couple of times, too. So anyway, but the point is what, the way he talked about it. And I think he's, uh, Paul McGinley was talking about how he's working with, he, uh, Paul has worked with Rotella and knows Rotella well, and he thinks he sees Rotella's fingerprints on, on Tiger, uh, excuse me, on Rory's sensibilities right now. Mm-hmm. And, and this is, this is Bob Rotella, the, the author of many books, including uh, golf is not a game of perfect. And, and he works with, has worked with many PGA tour pros on their mindset. Yeah. I mean, he's sort of a pioneering, the pioneering sports psychologist in golf. Right. Probably. Uh, and, uh, you know, not a real complicated message, but it's really about, Hey, how do you shoot a number and how do you, you know, prepare yourself, uh, to make the best of what you have that day. And as you were saying earlier, Rory, when he's not on, has not, he's not good at, at, uh, squeezing out, uh, the best of himself every, uh, when he's not on, when he's on, he's, he's an inspired player. And as I, as we said, you know, he's won two majors by eight strokes and it's kind of his, his legacy, but that's not going to happen anymore. I mean, he might win majors again, but it's not because uh, there's too many people that play in a similar way to him for him to outstrip that, unless he puts incredibly well and does the other things, but he's not going to do it just by driving the ball perfectly and win by eight strokes. Well, something I was thinking about a lot this week is the idea of sustained greatness. Rory had a period of a few years where he was truly great. And we all sort of assumed because we were just coming out of Tiger's great era that it would continue, but it didn't. And then since then, we've also had great runs from Jordan Spieth, from even Jason Day for a little bit there. We're currently in the midst of one with Scotty Scheffler. We had a great run from from Brooks Kepka in, in majors at least. Yeah. And what does it take to sustain greatness? And and I think that's that's such a complicated question, not one that we're going to get to answer here. But when you think of Tiger Woods and you think of how he sustained his greatness, at various points in his career, people did seem to catch up to him. Just as you said, you know, people have caught up to Rory in his driving of the ball. You know, people seem to kind of catch up to Tiger maybe by 2002, 2003, at least in, in terms of the equipment, right? He didn't have that advantage of the, the urethane Nike ball anymore. And, and there were a few years when, when he wasn't winning as many majors, but then he kind of reworks his swing, figures a few things out and goes on another amazing run from about 2005 to 2008. And and so Tiger has put together those different phases of his career, and now he's in yet another phase of his career where he's coming <laughs> back from these injuries and, and doing yeah. things that just blow our minds in different ways. And it's all out of this, it seems like, this love of the game. And I wonder if that's the thing that Tiger had that these other guys just don't quite have in his grade of quantities. Well, you framed it very well. Uh, I I agree with so many of the things that you're implying in your question, and I do think Tiger is special, uh, physically, very very gifted. Obviously, it's not his greatest quality, in his opinion. He he, he always talks about, not always, but he, he has talked about, you know, wanting to be sure, maybe the most talented, maybe not the most talented, but but certainly the hardest worker, and to be in his own mind an overachiever. Uh, so there's this, but this is tremendous desire and, and burning ambition and determination that he has. And who knows where that fuel comes from? That makes him special as well. And so I think to your point about, gee, we, we looked like there was a template being set there and, and Rory was going to follow it and, you know, make the Rory era as good as the Tiger era. And, you know, I guess that's recency bias or whatever you want to call it, but he definitely, um, 
was was sort of looking like he was heading there because you know again uh, those major victories with uh, by so many shots and then having four at such a young age. Uh, but I think the separator is Tiger's just refusal to ever be satisfied and to rise to any challengers. Uh, uh, he rose to David Duvall. I mean, he played his best golf when he was challenged. He rose to DJ. Uh, he rose to Ernie Els. And Jack did that to a large extent. I mean, he had a bunch of guys who came after him. Uh, he, he conquered Arnold, but then you know, there was there was Trevino and there was Johnny Miller and there was Weisskopf and there was Ray Floyd and uh, I'm probably missing some. I mean, nobody really caught him. He answered every challenge until finally Age and Watson and Watson Watson's sort of his own genius finally overcame Jack. So I think that's a quality of greatness. And if you're going to sustain, you have to be motivated every time somebody challenges you. And, and I don't know that everybody has that. Uh, but the other thing I think is that in an inverse way, sort of Tiger becomes this cautionary tale because Tiger gave everything to the game uh, in terms of his energy and his obsession it, it, it towards perfection and improvement constantly. And, you know, Tiger li- has lived a complicated life and it, it may have taken a toll on him and his ability to balance life and have a good life because he made some mistakes that who knows where they came from. but. I think there's a sense, I don't know why you just used the phrase cautionary tale. I I think, you know, there's people uh, who are close to that position, whether it be whoever, Jordan Spieth or Jason Day or anybody who got, or Rory himself, uh, feeling like, is it worth it? Can you have balance? Can you have a good life if you're that obsessed by golf? And with the greater rewards available in golf and the extra comfort that comes with success, you got to be extra motivated to even want it more than as much as Tiger uh, to to stay at the top. Uh, you know, I, I, part of me thinks Tiger's just a generational talent, and part of me thinks that Tiger has created hesitancy to have the same kind of dedication among the guys that have followed him, who idolize him and want to be like him, uh, at least, you know, in terms of golf, but do they really want to be like him in ter- terms of what it takes internal? And the, and the costs of that were on full display this, this week as, as Tiger was well, there you visibly go. Yeah. in pain, you know, as, as wonderful and inspirational as it was to see him come back in this manner. And, and it truly was, it was concerning and it was, uh, it was tough to see him in so much pain. And, and so that, that is the, the cost of, of, you know, many years of uh, his body going through what it has gone through. Yeah, I mean, you know, some of those some of those injuries were golf related. Some of them were, you know, certainly the psychic scars from the, you know, from the, the scandal that he had. Uh, I, I consider those to be very significant, and and overcoming them was without having any evidence other than just intu- intuition. Were harder to overcome than than the physical ones, uh, and and those you could say those scars were were caused perhaps by getting his life out of balance with too much focus and uh, not focus, but just, just too much of himself in one thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, who knows, but, you know, I go back to what Nicholas said, he goes, I could have been better, but I would have driven myself crazy. Uh, and you know, whatever crazy means, uh, it, it, I, in his mind, it would have perhaps, you know, infringed on his life and his family and all the things that he, hope to keep in, in balance that, and others have praised him for It's like as good as Jack was, he was pretty darn normal. Uh, and that's kind of the ideal. So I do think equipment is also maybe a subcategory of this, that it's brought players together in a way where it becomes ball striking is not as hard as it used to be. And so the putter, which is kind of probably the most capricious club in the bag becomes a determiner of whether somebody stays at the top for, for however long they stay. And when that cools, somebody else with a hot butter comes up and does it. Uh, that's awfully simplistic, but I, I think there's something to it that, uh, you know, the artistry that it is not as the demand on artistry with the irons and, and different shots and moving the ball around is not as great as it used to be. And the clubs don't let you do it. The balls don't let you do it as easily. And so it becomes kind of a straight ahead, more monotonous game uh, that a lot of guys can, can kind of play. And, and the margins between players are, smaller it seems like that that has a big role in you know why there's so hard to dominate for a long time unless you have some clear advantage over everybody and i don't 
it's hard to find. I mean, I think that's what Bryson was after. Yes. You know, as much as, as as much as Bryson has, you know, probably mismanaged it, especially recently, especially <laughs> getting hurt. He was after he was he was after something that was going to separate it. Yes. Which I admire. And, yeah. and uh, you know, but it's it just shows how hard it is to separate it. And 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 Bryson didn't do the necessary work, at least maybe he had pl- he was planning to, but he hadn't done the necessary work on the rest of the game that was going to take advantage of the advantage that he was building with the length. He had to have good wedges to, to capitalize on the, on the length. And he, he never really got there in any event, you know, at least he was trying to do something. And even Tiger praised him for that. And I bet if Tiger was 22 years old now, he'd be doing something like that. That, that is an interesting question. How, how would Tiger have pursued this kind of advantage in an era where there does seem to be, as you say, this leveling, um, so yeah, that's very interesting. So we'll see where Scotty Scheffler falls in this, whether he can maintain his, you know, sort of extraordinary run. I mean, he's obviously not going to do it at this rate for, uh, forever. He's, he's won four of his past six tournaments at this point, but he does seem a step ahead right now. And so the interesting question will be how long can he maintain that? And once he gets to a certain level of fame and greatness, is he going to really want it, no matter the cost? Yeah, I, I think the one he, he he does seem to have like a pure joy for playing, and even the competition he likes it, and and that's that's wonderful. And he has he has a nice humility about him that tells him, you know, I'm not there yet. I got to keep improving. So he's on that, you know, kind of that uh, improvement uh, ethos that I think is the healthiest way to go about playing golf. It's like, you know no matter what you achieve, just stay in the process that keeps you improving. Mm-hmm. And that takes care of so many things uh, because you get the joy of whether the res- whatever the result is, you know, you got better. And, and that's, you know, as, as, as long as he's got the joy for the game, that that's going to, that's going to provide the energy, I think until that leaves us hope it doesn't leave him. But uh, it, inevitably, you know, number one is wearing on people. Uh, I don't think anybody's worn it that well for a while. You know, it's, it's, it seems like it's taken its toll, uh, on most of the guys that get up there. Uh, let's hope he doesn't, you know, he, he sometimes somehow becomes sort of an exception to that. Well, Jaime, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for uh, spending a portion of your evening with me. Hope to see you on golf channel again soon. Thanks Garrett. It's a uh, very stimulating talking to you. Thanks a lot. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast invites you to discover the greatness within Elijah Craig Small Batch. Elijah Craig Bourbon never settles for less than the best. Every bottle of their award-winning Small Batch carries a signature warm spice and subtle smoke flavor. It is exceptionally smooth and well-balanced. I like to drink it on the rocks. I'm a pretty simple guy that way, but I just like the cool bite of a chilled drink combined with the warmth of the bourbon flavor. I get complex aromas of vanilla beans, sweet fruit, and fresh mint. The palate is pleasantly woody with accents of spice, smoke, and nutmeg. Elijah Craig won double gold at the San Francisco World Spirits Competition last year and the Tried and True Award from the Ultimate Spirits Challenge in 2020. Pick up a bottle today or order online at drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com. And save $5 on a bottle of Elijah Craig delivered right to your door with code FRIEDEGG5. That's fried egg and the number five, all one word. The Fried Egg is brought to you by Elijah Craig Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey, Bardstown, Kentucky. 47% alcohol by volume. Elijah Craig reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. All right, I am here with Bob Crosby. Bob is a golf historian and an authority on golf course architecture, as well as an Atlanta resident. Um, And Bob, I understand that you were out at the Masters this past week for at least one day. What was your what was your general approach during that day? What did you see? What did you do? Well, I, I, uh, first of all, thanks. I'm delighted to be here with you. Um, uh, I wanted to see the changes to 11, which everybody's been talking about. Uh, and uh, some of the changes on three, uh, more subtle changes there. And just generally to see the golf course. Uh, I've been there many, many times, 
been lucky enough to play it several times, and then I visited with my father since 1959 or 60 or something. It did a long, long, long time. What's the first Masters that you saw? First Masters I saw was in 1960 with my father. We drove over. I grew up in Athens, Georgia. We drove over to Augusta one morning. As I recall, we went to the ticket office and bought a day pass, walked in, and he wanted, my father was a very good golfer, and we he wanted to see Bob Jones. So we went in to the practice area and watched Bob, uh, Ben, Ben, excuse me, uh, Ben Hogan warming up. And it was before they had bleachers there. And I think we were standing maybe 10 yards away from him, watching him hit balls to his shag boy, who didn't have to move at all, by the way. While we, while we were standing there watching him, this old tricycle golf cart pulls up and it's Bob Jones um, with his, with his arthritic fingers, with a, a cigarette holder threaded through his fingers and he too stood there, sat there with us, and watched Ben Hogan hit golf balls for twenty, thirty minutes. Uh, it was a, in, to this day a distinct memory, wonderful moment. We walked, we followed him for several holes. I forget how the day ended, but we had to get back home. But it was just a remarkable, remarkable visit. Wow, that is something else. Um, all right. Well, I, as much as I'd love to uh, keep talking about that, we we should maybe focus on this latest experience out at Augusta National, uh, you were starting to describe what you did during the day. Um, so you wanted to see the changes to 11, et cetera. Um, what were some of the things that you saw out there? Yeah, can, can I, I would like to give you my hot take on 11, <laughs> along with everybody else's hot take on We're, we're all about hot takes here. Um, but I also wanted to talk from a historian's point of view about Augusta National's architecture. And, and mm-hmm. let me let me start with 11. I think it's a bit of a mess. I, you can almost see the powers that be at Augusta National thinking through those changes. Somebody said, well, you know, the up and downs when people bail out to the right of the green are just too darn easy. So let's build a swale in there, make it more difficult for them to get up and down from the from that sort of a, sort of a little bail shot. And then you can hear somebody saying, well, yeah, but if we're going to make that harder, then we've got to sort of expand the, the fairway, take some of those trees out, and, and and I think that's sort of what they did. A marker for me of a of dubious golf architecture is when you see catch basins for drainage, and there is a new catch basin built in that swale at the right side of the green now, and there's also a catch basin built, maybe there's more than one built. Uh, for the new expanded fairway area over there by those sort of three orphan trees stuck right al- along the right there there's some recontouring and and it and it yeah it feeds down to a catch basin if if there are catch basins and something I don't think is quite right now maybe that's not always the case but at any rate it, it was I, I think it's a mess um, what's particularly infuriating to me is that you have a drawing for that hole done by the best golf architect ever to trod the face of the earth. Just use his drawing. Put the centerline bunkers back in. Take the damn trees out. You need to push the tees back as they have done. That's great. You could even push them farther back if you wanted to. Um, But use McKenzie's drawing for the hole. Now, you know, the original hole had a green on the other side of the 10th, uh, 10th green, so it was actually played as a slight dogleg right, but the same idea would work from the existing tees. And just use them. I, uh, I, my, my, every time I come to Augusta, my thought is that they have spent so much time and effort trying to, and these are meant to be scare quotes, improving the golf course over the years, from George Cobb to Robert Trent Jones to Perry Maxwell, etc. I, I don't, you don't, you have a great, great golf course there. I do note it's, it's, it's an interesting paradox that one of, at least to my knowledge, one of the earliest attempts to restore an original architect's work was conducted at Augusta National by Byron Nelson and Joe Finger when they restored the eighth green after that horrendous, horrendous mess that I guess it was Cliff Roberts who was. It was Clifford Roberts, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so just to give people a picture, around the eighth green are those incredible mounds. And and those 
a, a version of those was originally there in 1934. That was Mackenzie and Jones's idea for the whole. And then in the 50s, Clifford Roberts decided to completely eliminate those mounds, I guess, to open up sight lines for spectators. And what ended up being produced just looks absolutely absurd. But it stayed there for about 20 years until the club decided to restore in, in 1979, I think it was. And you're making the great point that this is an early instance of restoration, right? In fact, I'm having trouble. I'd love to anybody that watches this, if they know of an earlier instance where somebody consciously restored an architectural feature of a golf course to go, take it back to the original design. I can't think of another instance earlier than this, but maybe they're out there. But it's, it's a remarkable, in an otherwise not so happy architectural history, this is a bright, shining moment. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as you're indicating, some of the best changes that Augusta National has made in the modern era have been to take the course back to what it was. You know, the, the changes to restore the mounding around the eighth green have obviously completely improved that hole. It was, it was uh, ridiculous for a couple of decades. And the best move was to restore what was there before. And they did that. Now, with 11, I think that People were sort of excited. I was sort of excited about what was happening there because they were removing trees on the right. That hole had become very narrow. It had become just sort of like keep it out of the trees on the drive. That was the big challenge. Now it's one of the easiest fairways on the on the course to hit. And and so it's a positive change in the sense that some trees have been eliminated. But as I heard you suggesting there was a kind of there's a there's a sort of design by committee feeling about what happened at the 11th hole. Right. It's like, OK, let's remove trees, but now nah, let's keep like three of them just standing there in the right half of the fairway, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It seems like there were a lot of compromises and a lot of different voices contributing to the work there. I don't have any information about how it actually happened. That's just the feeling I get from looking at it. I agree. It has all the earmarks of a committee compromise of some sort. Let's let's ground up this. Let's finish this meeting. Let's agree to do this. And they, that's right. what they do. And, and you know the, the 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 maddening part to me about walking around the course a couple of days ago is that given the architectural the significant and a very important architectural history of this golf course, why they haven't hired somebody with some understanding of that history to redo holes as necessary. And, you know, there are any number of people out there that know McKinsey like the back of their hand, Tom Doak, Coor Crenshaw would be wonderful. There are all sorts of people that could do this work. Crenshaw, hell, is a member, won the tournament twice. I mean, I, It would seem to be an obvious choice. It's like hit me Crenshaw. on the head. What am I missing here? It just, it, it's, um, uh, and, and, and a keen student of the game. I mean, it's just, it's remarkable. And that's a part I just don't get. I mean, they've been through now Fazio and I guess Bo Welling and others who don't have a track record of doing a lot of restoration of Golden Age golf courses. Um, Use them. They're out there. And if, if, if a course deserves them, it's this course. Augusta National is an incredibly important American golf course historically. I was rereading the other day the spirit of Saint uh, the spirit of Saint Andrews, written at about the same time that uh, uh, that McKenzie was designing Augusta. And it's a remarkable book when you read it in the, that context, uh, because McKenzie, by the way, and you know, just parenthetically, he mentions my man John John Lowe about ten times. He he he's a big fan of John Lowe, but. The the interesting thing about the book, as it relates to Augusta National, is that and, and and this is my take on the book, and I'm happy to argue about it with somebody if they want to, is that he identifies an early stage of golf strategic golf architecture, uh, uh, developed first by Lowe and then taken on by Harry Colt, uh, Tom Simpson. Uh, Fowler and others, and 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 they develop in Woking, and he talks all the Sunny to all the famous 
you know, newly designed or redesigned courses that, that pop up in the teens and then many, many more in the 1920s. The interesting thing about the, about the book, though, is I think McKenzie thought that there was another stage and that Augusta National evidenced that second stage of strategic golf architecture. And that stage was basically that we, we, we are going to emphasize less bunker placement and more on contours and undulations of the natural terrain. Bob Jones was the perfect boss for that because he got it. Well, I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But, you know, I, I don't know if you've seen the story. McKenzie's first plan to, for Augusta National was to he submitted it with 36 bunkers. Jones said, no, too many. I want you to go back to 20. They ended up on 22. I don't know how they got there. But, but 22 was ridiculously few bunkers. But the idea there was that by making the difficulties of the course linked to the contour and undulations of the land, I can do two things. That makes it much harder for really good players because it's less predictable. But the dreaded bunker shot for the weaker players is less, is, is less frequent. And it, it, it makes the course, and in fact it is a course, it's a delight to play by, I'm a high single-digit handicap player, it's a delight for me to play from the regular men's tees, but it just beats the hell out of the pros. And I think it has to do with that emphasis on contour and undulation and less emphasis on bunkers. And that was the second stage of golf architecture that I think McKenzie envisioned. Now, he dies a couple of months before the first Masters in the middle of the Great Depression. World War II follows on. Nobody has any money. No golf courses are being built. But I think but for those historical events, if, 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 if the world had continued on as before, I think Augusta National would have changed the face of golf architecture for the next couple of decades. That is the, that is the heritage that the people at Augusta National, I don't think, quite get. Uh, they see it, I think, as just a venue for a major championship geared all, in all sorts of ways to the to to the play of to, to the best players in the world but the role the, the place of augusta national in the in the history of american golf architecture is extraordinarily important and as you start tweaking it and mucking around with it you start diluting uh, what is on the ground there and its significance for golf architecture going forward uh, one, can I say one other thing? Absolutely. I was doing some research on this a couple months ago, and to my pleasure and surprise, I discovered two things. First, in the late 1920s and early 1930s, Muirfield, Sunningdale, and all sorts of other courses over there were going through the same process. They were debunkering their courses. Muirfield went from 320 bunkers in 1931 to something like a hundred, uh, but all the courses were going through this debunkering on more or less the same grounds. That let's just let the contours take take over, and they are harder for good players to deal with, but easier for bad players to deal with. And it sort of it sort of squares the circle. The other interesting thing is that is that the unique features of Augusta National have a pedigree in America. And that pedigree is two courses. Maybe, maybe I'm missing some. I'd love to hear about others. One is Max Bear's Lakeside in Los Angeles. Uh, parts of that course were washed out by big floods, and others will know more about the details of the course. Than but, but McKenzie thought it was one of the great, in, in the spirit of St. Andrews, thought it was one of the great courses in America. And he noted it had very, very, very few rough areas, and relatively few bunkers, although the ones he had were big. I mean, what does that sound like? The, 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 the other course that was, that was a immediate predecessor, well, there were really two. Crystal Downs arguably was one, too. That's 1929. But the other course that no longer exists is um, Bayside. A lost course. A lost course, but uh, 
I, I, I found some articles from New York journalists that were shocked, shocked at the paucity of bunkers there. Um, and that so much of the uh, interest and strategy of the course depended on mounding and, and land features. And it could read like early reviews of Augusta National and its McKenzie's course. It, it may have been sort of a test run for Augusta National in some respects for McKenzie. Um, it was built as a public golf course. Uh, with with not 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 as well finished probably as Augusta National, but but uh, that aspect of Augusta National needs to be retained, and I worry in the name of more traditional concepts of how to make a course difficult, that those approaches to golf architecture are being overrun by those more traditional ideas that bunkers here, bunkers there, bunkers everywhere. Augusta has a unique place in architectural histories and was not just the culmination of a golden age of golf architecture. It was also the beginning point for a new kind of golf architecture that built on that. And that's what, to me, that's the debt Augusta National owes to golf history, is keep, keep that new window it was trying to open on golf architecture opened somehow. Uh, you know, it, the, the course McKenzie designed was strategic golf architecture on LSD. It was wild. Boomerang greens, wild bunkering here and there, crazy contours. Look at the fifth green. Look at the 14th green. The ninth green. The ninth green. I mean, we could go on at the greens. I mean, you know, I'm going to make you play. If, if you're a good golfer, you're going to have to deal with unpredictable bumps, humps, and rolls, not just in the fairways, and there are plenty in the fairways, but especially on the greens. Mm-hmm. And you, you, you've got to put your ball in the right place or you're going to three-putt. And I don't have any sympathy for it. I have no obligation to you to make sure you two-putt from any point in the green there may be places where you hit your ball where you have no chance to putting. And that's fine. That's fine. Um, but, uh, and, and that's the edgy nature of Augusta National is what they, I hope they can keep and in some cases roll back to. I think it'll hold up beautifully against the best golfers in the world. Just get the tees back. There's no choice about that. Just push the tees back. Uh, and, and, and that's what, every time I get in the car after being at Augusta National, I turn to my wife and I say, you know, this needs, this, this is an important, the building of this course was an important historical event. Uh, and, and we need to recapture that moment, or they need to recapture that moment somehow. And hiring somebody to come along and fix this, tweak that, in the name of holding scores down or keeping scores up for various holes, is just the wrong approach. Yeah, uh, I I think people forget how radical Augusta National was when it first opened, and and that's sort of the heritage that gets lost when the Masters and Augusta National Golf Club become, as they have, institutions. It was it, it was in, exactly it was intended as a radical extension of the ideas of strategic golf course architecture, unlike anything anybody had seen before. So when you're out there and you fire up that Caterpillar D6 and start plowing away at stuff, you know, give pause to the history you're working on, uh, because I think McKenzie would be spinning in his grave. That edgy version of Augusta National is is under threat of being lost forever. And the changes at 11, just, it was like somebody hit me with a baseball bat. I said, oh God, this is worse than I thought. All right, so I'm here with Joseph LaMagna, a regular guest on the Fried Egg Podcast. Joseph is the founder of Optimal Approach Golf, and he has a great mind for statistics and for golf in general. So uh, we thought we would add his perspective to the others we've gotten for this episode. Joseph, how you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. It was a good weekend. 
Yeah. Did you did you take on the fire hose of content? Were you were you absorbing all weekend long? I was. That's I'm sure this this take is not unique to me, but the Masters website is so good that basically from sun up to sundown you can watch a bunch of golf shots. So I was taking advantage of that. No, it's it's incredible like how many rabbit holes it it provides you. Like you can spend effectively an unlimited amount of time exploring different like specific things of interest. Yeah, and you even get some good audio until it gets scrubs off scrubbed off the site, you know, <laughs> if it gets particularly colorful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, so Joseph, why don't we start with one big takeaway that you had from the weekend? Sure, yeah, I was thinking about this a lot after watching Scotty win. Elite short game is not something that it's not to say that no players on tour have elite short game, but most of the players who have elite short game on tour have a, a gap in their game somewhere else. So somebody like Cam Smith, right? He wasn't the best driver of the golf ball, didn't hit it that far, like a little bit errant, elite short game. Well, he adds distance and he starts getting in contention all the time. Somebody like Patrick Reed, some of the best short game on tour, not an elite ball striker, hasn't been driving it particularly well. But when he does, I mean, he's won a significant number of times on tour. And so we might have somebody in Scotty Scheffler who has elite short game. His chipping's been incredible and also checks a lot of those other boxes, hits it far, hits it relatively straight off the tee. It's exciting that we might have somebody who kind of is so well-rounded in a way that very few other players on the planet are. So maybe I should have seen the Scotty Scheffler coming a little bit more than I did. And I think that's true of a lot of people in the golf world who, you know, obviously didn't see him ascending the world number one as quickly as he has. Yeah. I mean, this, this was a question I posed to Jaime and it's like, what is it about Scotty Scheffler that really sticks out? Because usually when you have a player who goes on a run like this, you can identify a particular skill where they are ultra elite, you know, Rory and his driving Brooks Kepka and his power, et cetera, et cetera. With Scotty, there does seem to be a particular well-roundedness, but elite short game, as you're saying, does seem to be one thing that the rest of his game kind of revolves around or is built off of. Right. And it, again, you could get into like, sort of a random player, but Siwoo Kim, right? Elite chipper of the golf ball, one of the best in the world. Not a great putter, not particularly long off the tee, but he's won on tour, including a player's championship. And when you have that elite short game, you just turn a lot of bogeys into pars. If you don't have elite short game, when your ball striking's not quite there, you make some sloppy bogeys. And so it's, it's, Cool to watch Scotty Scheffler. When he's hitting the ball really well, he might not even need to lean on it. But when he does need to lean on it, it's there. And I think that's what... We'll see how much that persists into the future. But if he truly is an elite chipper, we could be looking at somebody who's a stalwart of the top five in the official world golf rankings. Do you have any observations about Rory's performance this week? Uh, I, I hate to be a bit of a downer. I, I'm, I'm a little tired of the Rory, like, what if Rory goes out in 30 takes? Like, <laughs> at some point, he's got to win. He hasn't won in a decade. I, I was impressed. He's been playing really well. But it feels like, in particular, golf Twitter and the media is trying to will him to this win. And he just hasn't done it. So, like, to be celebrating as much as he was when he holed out a bunker shot, to finish and you know runner up like that's uh, tiger woods was would never have been doing that in his prime right like the expectation should be to win so i don't want to hate on rory I, that's less of a rory take and more of a the way we treat rory take uh but maybe i'm just a little bit tired of some of those the social media around rory rory coming right right like i i like him but he's got to win at some point and that's where i want to give the credit to scotty scheffler he's doing it yeah, I mean, I, I would be as happy as anyone to see Rory put in a spectacular Sunday performance at the Masters and win. But the thing is, he didn't really have much of a chance yesterday. That that's that's sort of an underrated thing. His at least on on according to Data Golf's probabilities yesterday, he peaked at five percent. That was his peak, and that was after the fourteenth hole, and he went on to 
go par par on 15 and 16, which were playing relatively easy that day. And, and so listen, like it was great that he shot that score. It was an incredible round, but he really wasn't that close. And, and, and people are acting like he was close. And so I, I'm with you on that, actually. Yeah, I'm just a little jaded by it, I guess. And when I think about major championships over the last five years and thinking about Rory McIlroy, my main memories are like him trying to make the cut at an open championship and an impressive fourth round where, right, he never really had a chance to win. Like, I'd just like to see him do it. He has every skill that you need. He's another one of those really well-rounded players. He's playing great right now. Like, just go do it, and then I'll be happy to celebrate when he does. All right, so uh, golf course takes. Uh, We heard from Bob Crosby about some of the historical questions that Augusta National faces in considering whether to restore golf holes and uh, you know take things back to how they were. But there's a separate set of questions about how these holes play in competition. Uh, and so do you have any analysis in that arena that you came upon this this past weekend? Yeah, I think similar to how players say every time they play at Augusta, they learn something new. Just in watching Augusta every year, I've come to appreciate it more and more. I think it's as close to a perfect test as we get. It's not that's not to say everything plays perfectly, but I think especially off the tee, it is the best test we see all year. And what I really appreciate about it is how there are certain holes where a particular shot shape is required. And there are certain holes where a particular shot shape is rewarded, not necessarily required. So I think the my favorite example is hole 13. We're all familiar with that hole. You really do need to curve that ball right to left off of the tee. And especially in modern golf, almost all of the elite ball strikers hit a cut off the tee. And so to see them have to work the ball right to left is exciting. The the best example I can give you is Justin Thomas really doesn't have that shot. It's been his worst hole at the Masters since he started. Uh, This year, he was the only player to finish in the top 10 who didn't make a single birdie on that hole. He put one way left, I believe three in the pine straw right. If you don't have that shot, it's limiting. And there aren't very many other places on tour where you see that. So I, I really appreciate that about Augusta. Even a hole like 10, if you can curve it right to left and take it down that left side, you get a pretty significant advantage because it rolls out a lot more. So it's Augusta just demands so many shots of players that you don't see pretty much any other time through the whole year. And it's a complicated question, I feel, because some of those tee shots that you're talking about, 13 and 10 in particular, what makes those tee shots exacting? right now? What forces players to work the ball right to left on both of them in an uncomfortable way is when it comes down to it, trees, right? I mean, on 10, there, there's some influence of the slope. Yeah, if you get over to the left, you roll out a little bit. You also have like the green cants pretty uh, significantly as well. And, and and it's a little bit better to, to be down there and not be hitting down the slope of the green. But uh, as you've observed a number of times, these kinds of angles matter a bit less when players are hitting it as high as they do now. But 13, certainly the influence on that shot is those trees out to the right. You've just got to avoid them. And in order to avoid them, you need to bend the ball around the trees to the left. And, and so, you know, if you take out the trees, the holes are resemble quite a bit more their historical predecessors. But if you take out the trees, then this factor that you're talking about goes away. Yeah. It, it, brings me no pleasure as somebody who appreciates <laughs> golf course architecture to say that angles don't make a huge difference on the PJ tour but the reality is these guys just hit it so high and with so much spin that angles generally don't matter a whole lot on tour and a huge part of the, another part of the reason for that is scoring really starts to happen when you hit the ball inside 10 feet and so you're not hitting it inside 10 feet that high of a percentage of the time anyway. So a lot of shots with a lot of spin that are high that go to 20 feet are ideal shots on tour, and you don't necessarily have to have a perfect angle to do that. So I'm fine with width and trees as a way of making angles matter a little bit on tour, and Augusta does it so effectively. All right, Joseph. 
thank you so much for these takes. Appreciate it. And uh, we'll definitely have you back on the podcast soon. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, Garrett. Appreciate it. <laughs>